Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Today on the show, Wyoming is fighting back against proposed updates to the federal coal program. We don't want to be forced onto welfare in Gillette. We want to work and pay our way through life without asking for government assistance. We will hear what our congressional delegation has to say about same-sex marriage, and we'll climb a mountain with landscape artist Joe Arnold. I thought nobody's doing the mountaineer view, which is quite a unique perspective. Plus a visit to H&S Specialty Coffee Roasters in Laramie. You want a slurp? You want to aerate the coffee? That's your time. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Whether you know it or not, you own coal. Many of the country's biggest coal deposits are on federal land, land that belongs to the American public. So when companies mine that coal, they pay royalties to the federal government and to the states. 85% of federal coal comes from Wyoming, and last year the state received about a quarter of a billion dollars in royalty payments. But a new effort to raise those royalty payments is surprisingly controversial. Our Inside Energy reporter Lee Patterson has more. The pre-hearing rally began under a bright white tent in Gillette, a town deep in Wyoming's coal country. We have folks from Alpha Coal West, from Arch Coal, and the Thunder Basin Coal Company. Give yourselves a hand. That's Travis Detai from the Wyoming Mining Association, the sponsor of the so-called Stop New Energy Taxes rally. It was a warm-up act for the main event at the local library. Hi, everyone. It's great to be in Wyoming. Janice Schneider with the Department of the Interior welcomed the crowd to a listening session about how the Bureau of Land Management can best manage its coal resources. Forty percent of America's coal is on federal land. Under the current system, coal companies often pay less, sometimes far less, than the required 12.5 percent in royalties for that coal through a variety of loopholes. It's complicated. At this meeting held earlier this month, an independent moderator, Liz O'Brien, acknowledged it's also controversial. My job is also to, to make sure that we know that every, reasonable people can disagree on just about everything. Hundreds showed up, including Wyoming's governor and the state's entire Washington, D.C. delegation. They came to weigh in on what was largely seen as a fight for coal's future. Senator John Barrasso was one of the first to speak. I find it extremely hypocritical for the administration to ask whether it's getting a fair return on federal coal when it's gone to such length to suppress the demand for coal. To Barrasso and many others at this meeting and at other similar hearings across the country this summer, the royalty issue is not about American taxpayers getting their fair share. What you're proposing will be devastating to our community, to our kids, and to our families. And pardon me, please, if I seem a little nervous and uneasy, you know, my likelihood does lie in the balance here. We don't want to be forced onto welfare in Gillette. We want to work and pay our way through life without asking for government assistance. That was Sherry England, coal miner J.J. Mendoza, and grandmother Penny Russell. 
But during the entire meeting that lasted more than four hours, there was almost no mention of the elephant in the room. And that is the fact of climate change. That's like Sam Pennington, a college student. While discussing the economic impacts of coal is necessary, this conversation would be incomplete without acknowledging the basic scientific realities that the climate is changing, that we are responsible, and that coal is the number one contributor to climate change. At the meeting, I pulled Cloud Peak Energy's CEO Colin Marshall aside. He said that until everyone agrees on what is actually at stake, there's not much room for discussion. If they said we'd just like the coal to stay in the ground because they were concerned about climate, I think they'd be being honest. Then you could have actually a discussion about climate change. That disconnect between the federal coal program and climate change is in part due to contradictions within the federal government itself. The Obama administration wants to cut down on coal as part of its fight against climate change. But through the BLM, the federal government continues to manage a coal program on federal lands that has produced around 5 billion tons of it over the past decade. Interior Secretary Sally Jewell acknowledged that tension during a speech earlier this year. Coal is going to continue to be an important part of our nation's energy mix in the future. How do we manage the program in a way that's consistent with our climate change objectives? while at the same time managing a federal coal program that gives a fair return on a resource that belongs to all of us. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. In North Dakota's Bakken oil field, demand for electricity has skyrocketed, unlike in most of the country where it's been relatively flat for the last decade. That means utilities have been scrambling to get more power into the area. In the past, they might build a new coal-fired power plant, but that's become difficult, especially under brand new environmental regulations to cut carbon emissions. Our Inside Energy reporter Emily Guerin looks at how you meet a growing demand for power without coal. Dale Haugen is really proud of his company's new garage. You gotta come and see the view. We're gonna walk up the steps. From a balcony, we peer out over the ground floor of the cavernous building that will hold equipment and trucks. It belongs to Montreal Williams Electric Cooperative, a North Dakota utility company that has recently seen explosive growth. Haugen's the general manager here. This is my 33rd year. And this utility is pretty much unrecognizable from when he started. It's gone from selling power to North Dakota farmers to selling almost exclusively to oil and gas companies. Holy cow, what a change. Montreal Williams sells 10 times as much power as it did seven years ago. 10 times. That means over 100 new employees, new trucks, and a gigantic new garage. Sitting in Haugen's office, I asked him to explain how much electricity it takes to drill for oil. So one oil well is equal to about three and a half to four homes. There's over 12,000 oil wells in North Dakota now. Plus you add pipelines, gas compressor stations. Apartments, apartments, apartments. Thousands of new oil field workers and their flat screen TVs. It adds up. Electricity use in North Dakota shot up 27 percent between 2008 and 2013, more than anywhere else in the country. And that power has to come from somewhere. Dale Haugen's utility distributes electricity, but it doesn't own the power plants themselves. These guys do. John Jacobs, I'm the vice president of operations for Basin Electric. Basin Electric Power Cooperative, based in Bismarck, it's a big utility with 3 million customers in nine states, but it's got kind of a homey vibe. Like when you walk in, there's a display telling you what's for lunch. Today, it's tater tot hot dish. 
That's Midwestern for casserole. You gotta not only feed your power plants, but you gotta feed your people. Jacob says by 2035, the Bakken oil field region will need three times as much power as it needs today. It's based on electric's job to figure out where that power comes from. I don't know of any other utility that's dealing with these kinds of growth issues. That's Jacob's colleague, Steve Tomac. As we realized the, this growth was going to be huge, we developed a three-prong approach. One, buy power from utilities nearby that have extra. Two, get that power into the oil field with a new transmission line. And three, build new power plants, ones that run on natural gas instead of coal. That's a big deal for Basin Electric because it has always used coal. There's tons of it in North Dakota, and it's cheap to mine. But a few years ago, that changed. Steve Tomac explains. You know, in this environment, nobody will, number one, nobody will finance coal. President Obama's rule to cut carbon dioxide emissions from power plants is called the Clean Power Plan. It was finalized earlier this month, but for years in advance, lenders told Basin Electric, hey, if you're planning on building new coal plants, we're not interested. And it was very obvious that they didn't want to lend into that. With regulations and market factors like low natural gas prices, the economics of coal just weren't adding up anymore. So Basin Electric began building wind farms and natural gas plants, and they had to do it fast, faster than they were comfortable with. They thought I ought to go be pulled through a knothole on a wooden fence. <laughs> that was the reaction when Dale Haugen told Basin Electric just how soon he was going to need more power to meet oil field demand. They were shocked. In seven years, Basin Electric has gone from shocked to making it work. With some growing pains, they figured out how to power the number two oil-producing state. As utilities around the country puzzle over how to provide more power, one industry analyst I talked to said he wouldn't be surprised if they call Basin Electric and ask them how they did it so fast and how they did it without coal. For Inside Energy, I'm Emily Guerin. <laughs> Inside Energy is a public media collaboration covering America's energy issues. Basin Electric Power Cooperative is an underwriter of Prairie Public, one of Inside Energy's member stations. When we come back, we'll learn about a new podcast on Wyoming Public Radio. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Maybe you've heard of the podcast Serial. Millions of people have downloaded the show, and Serial's massive success has helped put podcasts on the media map. Because podcasts are so convenient for listeners, you can listen anytime, anywhere, public radio stations are increasingly getting into podcasting. Wyoming Public Radio is no exception. Micah Schweitzer joins me now to talk about several new shows. Hi, Micah. Hey, Melody. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, first of all, what exactly is a podcast? Okay, so the simplest way to think of it is it's a radio show, but you download it uh, from iTunes, for instance, or you stream it, for instance, on a podcast website or on other platforms like SoundCloud. So it's an online radio show, essentially. So Wyoming Public Radio now has three podcasts? Yeah, exactly. We've gone from uh, zero to three in a, in a short amount of time this summer. So one of them is the show you're listening to right now, Open Spaces. And what this means is, like you said in the intro, 
you can listen whenever and wherever you want. So if three o'clock on a Friday afternoon doesn't work for you, if noon on a Sunday doesn't work for you, download it on iTunes or stream it at wyomingpublicmedia.org and you can have it access to it anytime you want. Another new one is The Modern West, and that's a monthly digest of news and cultural stories about the Mountain West and uh, Wyoming, and you can find that at wyomingpublicmedia.org. And then the third one that we just launched this week is called Human Nature, and that's where humans in our habitat meet stories about human encounters in nature, uh, first-person storytelling, and that one you can learn more at our website, but you can also find that one at its own website, humannaturepodcast.org. And uh, that's spelled with one N between human and nature. That's very cool. Uh, and we're going to hear that first episode of Human Nature in just a minute. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how the idea for the show, the whole show, came about. Well, actually, it was Caroline Ballard's idea, and she's hosting the show. Sometimes it takes fresh eyes to see what's right in front of you. And she moved to Wyoming last summer, and we were talking about what, what kind of a show could we do that's of Wyoming. And she said, the outdoors. Of course, the outdoors, right? Wild places, um, humans in the wild world. And so that's the idea behind that show. It's first-person storytelling. Uh, we put a huge emphasis on our guests and them telling a dramatic story. So uh, the one we're going to hear in a few moments is about whitewater rafting. We have another episode that's out right now about a shark attack survivor. Uh, that did not happen in Wyoming, by the way, that one in Florida. So we're going all over the place with this podcast because nature is everywhere, humans are everywhere, and these interactions happen all over. And how often do you plan to release episodes? So that one is coming out monthly as well. That one comes out every third Wednesday of the month. And again, if you sign up on iTunes your iTunes will automatically download that and you'll never miss an episode. Micah Schweitzer hosts The Modern West and he's the senior producer of Human Nature. So let's take a listen. He sewed these little jock straps for these pigeons where the film was supposed to be placed. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, the podcast that explores where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. On this episode, we'll hear about one man's quest to get photographs from one side of a river to the other. It turns out it's more difficult than it sounds. These days, we have it easy with cameras on our smartphones, but this story happened in the 80s when cameras used film. Charlie Thomas was a guide on the Snake River for a whitewater rafting company in Jackson, Wyoming. And his boss, Rod, hit on the idea of selling photographs to customers. Get it? Float plus photograph, as in pictures of people rafting? The idea was to get the film back to town before the customers showed up on the bus so that when they stepped off the bus, voila, there were their pictures for sale. The problem is the best spot to take the pictures was on the bank of the river opposite the road. And this isn't exactly a lazy river either. The exciting parts of the snake are big rapids, and that's where you want to be for the dramatic photograph. But Charlie's boss wasn't deterred. And initially, he had uh, all sorts of different schemes. He, he tried having the photographers cast a film across the river with a fishing rod, which didn't work. They couldn't you know, couldn't get it all the way across. And then he, he tried having them tie it to an arrow and shoot it across 
the river. Where a motorcyclist was waiting to speed the film back to town. And um, they kept losing the film that way too. And so finally then Rod strung a wire across the river and they would put the film on a little pulley and it would go, you know, across on this wire. But then one day during high water, one of the other rafts coming down the river snagged the cable and took the whole thing down. So that also failed. Then he decided that the photographers would load up the film in this little plastic bag, this little floaty yellow bag. And when we came down, they would snap the pictures and then heave the film out into the river. And we were supposed to somehow get the customers. These were you paddle trips. And the people were paddling the raft. And we were supposed to get the people to turn the boat around and paddle back upstream to try to save this film that was floating down in the middle of the rapids. And needless to say, it wasn't working out very well. Let's talk about how ridiculous this is. Your raft is barreling through whitewater rapids. Now you need to turn your raft around and retrieve a floating film canister. So Charlie remembers his frustrated boss gathering together the raft guides. I remember one day Rod coming down and he's, you know, he's angry with us because we'd lost yet another thing of film. And he's like, what is the number one most important thing on the river? And we're like, um, safety? And he's, no, it's the film, the film, make sure the film gets. And so none of it was working very well. And, and photographs, you know, had a pretty bad record because mostly the people weren't able to see their pictures. So he'd, he'd He didn't have that captive audience. But even after all those setbacks, Charlie's boss was set on this idea of photographs. And eventually he hit on the solution, but it was an expensive, complicated solution. Racing pigeons. He was going to put the film on the racing pigeons. So all the money started going into these pigeons. And he built this pigeon coop. At the time, they had this building moratorium. I think the highest building in Jackson could only be two stories high. But Rod somehow managed to build on top of another building this pigeon coop that was three stories up, towering over everything in Jackson, was Rod's pigeon coop. And he spent oodles of money training these pigeons, and he took them to California so they could have a warm place where they could practice all the pigeoning and he he would <laughs> he had these schemes for the pigeons they he would starve them of food or of sex and they would be <laughs> so they would be motivated to fly back to the pigeon coop faster <laughs> and he sewed these little jock straps for these pigeons where the film was supposed to be placed and he was ready for the pigeons to make their maiden voyage So the day finally came for the pigeons to fly the film from the photographer on the far side of the river back to the raft outfitter. The photographers took these pigeons down to the river and, and they took their pictures and they put the film in the pigeon and flew it, sent it up in the air, and the pigeon just beelined towards Jackson and these things were fast. They would go like 60 miles an hour. They 
easily beat the bus back there. The people, as soon as they stepped off the bus, there was their picture. Sales were just roaring. It was a huge success. Everybody was excited. And then... And then, some pigeons didn't make it back to town with the film. Which is kind of weird because the pigeon film delivery system had been working so well. And it's not like they were getting off track and arriving late. They just weren't showing up at all. So Charlie's boss started to investigate why his pigeons were disappearing. And he discovered that the U.S. Forest Service had just begun reintroducing peregrine falcons along the Snake River. Racing pigeons are the fastest birds out there. Eagles can't keep up with them. The only thing that can catch a racing pigeon (laughs) is a peregrine falcon. And this is where a story about getting film across a river turns into a story about private enterprise versus big government. Rod, he was of the old school where he felt that the government had nothing to do with private industry. And he felt completely justified in protecting his interests against the government. And so Rod got himself a shotgun and he went down there and he decided he was going to protect his pigeons against those peregrine falcons. Well, the Forest Service didn't agree. And for all his gun waving, Rod didn't actually shoot any falcons, which is a good thing because at the time, the peregrine falcon was listed as an endangered species. And that's the challenge of operating a business within federally managed lands. Sometimes conservation and profits butt heads. And in this case, conservation won out. But Rod's pigeons did continue to carry the film and were successful for many years with only a small attrition rate to peregrine falcons. So the pigeons and the falcons had to coexist. And although the peregrine falcon's favorite meal is medium-sized birds, most of the film still made it back to town. Decades later, you can still get a photograph from your next rafting adventure. But the film won't be flown by a racing pigeon wearing a tiny jock strap. Today, it's pixels flying through the air instead of pigeons. Our storyteller was former Snake River raft guide Charlie Thomas. If you have a story to tell, get in touch through our website, humannaturepodcast.org. I'm Caroline Ballard. The show is produced by Aaron Jones and Ryan Oberhelman. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Micah Schweitzer. The theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature. That's the first episode of our new podcast, Human Nature. You can hear another episode about a shark attack at humannaturepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes along with our other podcasts. Coming up, stories about family literacy and the politics of gay marriage. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. Wyoming remains one of 10 states that do not fund a pre-K program. But Wyoming does fund some early childhood education, including eight family literacy programs around the state. 
The Teton Literacy Center runs one of those programs in Jackson, home to many Spanish-speaking immigrant families. As Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports, the program aims to level the playing field for students by educating two generations at once. Fiorella Lazarte is the center's early literacy coordinator. Today, she's driving her car across Jackson to the home of one of her five-year-old students. We're going to Camilo's home. They live in the Virginian apartments, an area where the working class lives. Camilo is one of 30 children in the center's literacy lab. The free program serves kids who don't have access to other preschool or daycare. Camilo lives in a Spanish-speaking home and will start kindergarten this fall. We're trying to increase his vocabulary in English because he's great in Spanish, so we're trying to make the transition to help him be successful at school. Lazarte says that success depends on empowering Camilo's parents to be participants in his learning. I remember being little, my mom was like my superhero, and that's how kids see their parents. So then to be successful at my job, I just have to teach the children through the parents. Last school year, Camilo spent nine hours a week in the classroom. This summer, he's attending practice kindergarten and getting monthly home visits from Lasarte. Inside, the five-year-old and Lasarte start running through letter names and sounds at the table, while Camilo's mother, Maria del Carmen Sanchez, watches. W. Easy, says Camilo, and they move on to sight words. These are words Lazarte wants Camilo to recognize just by looking at them. So can you find le- the word run in here? Do you see it? Run. Do you see it anywhere around here? This one? Yep. Good job. You did it. Lazarte asks Sanchez if she's been practicing with her son. Sanchez says yes, but only in Spanish, not English. That's great, Lasarte says. Si las aprende en español, no hay ningún problema. Si las aprende en inglés, if he learns in Spanish, that's fine. If he learns in English, that's also fine. But the point is that he learns, right? Sanchez immigrated from Tlaxcala, Mexico, to Jackson 10 years ago. She's not proficient in English yet, but takes night classes as part of this program. She also joins Camilo in the classroom once a month for parent and child together time. They've been in the program almost a year. Es muy bueno. Le ayuda mucho a los niños a aprender más y a los papás también. It's great. It helps the children learn more, and it also helps the parents too. It's helped me learn a few more words and to devote more time to my son. Research shows huge language gaps exist between kids long before kindergarten, and it comes down to the number of words spoken and read at home in any language. Your mom is going to help you, and she's going to read it out loud to you. Okay. Sanchez knows if she improves her language skills and learns some of these teaching tricks, she'll be closer to the future she wants for Camila. My only hopes are that he studies, that he becomes a professional, and has opportunities that I didn't. And, more than anything, that he's a good boy who eventually becomes a good man. This is a baby turtle. Turtle! Oh. Camilo reads aloud a book about baby animals. Boom! One of a okay. stack Lazarte leaves with his mom for later reading. Camilo, guess what? I'm coming back to your house at the end of the month again. After less than an hour, Lazarte is back in her car. But Camilo's at-home learning isn't over. I really hope Maria can take 
what she saw and feel comfortable to do it again at home with Camilo. Lizarte says that confidence is key for Camilo's mom and for Camila. When you're learning a new skill, you're timid, you are afraid, you're shy. My goal is for him to lose the fear and to feel comfortable and to believe in himself. That'll go a long way when Camilo starts kindergarten next month at Jackson Elementary School. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now that the Supreme Court has legalized same-sex marriage, conservatives in Congress, including Wyoming Republicans, are debating how to protect religious groups who disagree with the ruling. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that opponents of the most popular plan say it would lead to discrimination if it becomes law. For many Republicans, the debate over gay marriage is not settled. Many conservatives fear the Supreme Court's gay marriage ruling will force religious people and institutions to do things against their faith. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso says some are worried about the ruling. I think any people of faith always have concerns about any uh, thing that comes out that interferes with their ability to practice their beliefs, their religion, and their faith. That's part of the reason he's joining Wyoming's other two federal lawmakers in endorsing the First Amendment Defense Act. Senator Mike Enzi says it would protect the nonprofit status of religious institutions if the federal government tried to compel people to act against their faith. Well, I, th- I think it's important for Congress to say that uh, people do have a right to a First Amendment, um, to the First Amendment right to speak, and uh, their actions can be in coordination with that, and the federal government can't penalize them for their freedom of speech. More than one-third of Senate and House members have endorsed the measure. Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis says they're not endorsing discrimination. She offers the example of Catholic social services, which she says could be imperiled by the ruling. Because of their core faith values, they do not want to provide babies for adoption to same-sex couples. Uh, Should the fact that they, as a church-affiliated adoption agency, uh, lose their uh, tax-exempt status... Uh, or other federal contracts uh, simply because uh, of that. Critics worry the bill is too broad because it would apply to private businesses. That's raised concerns the legislation would allow discrimination against the LGBT community under the guise of religious freedom. Florida Republican Congressman Carlos Corbello says that a minimum, any so-called religious freedom bill should include protections for the LGBT community. Which is why a good idea is to add non-discrimination language that would specifically prohibit uh, private businesses, employers, uh, anyone for discriminating on uh, individuals based on uh, their sexual orientation. Uh, So we need to find that, that balance. Moderate Republicans are pushing back against conservatives, too. Illinois Republican Senator Mark Kirk says his party needs to drop its challenges and listen to the justices. We should definitely uh, just go along with the Supreme Court decision. For Congresswoman Lummis, the debate on gay marriage is merely evolving. It, It will spark a debate about what the role of the state is in the marriage contract. Um, before, uh, it was more a debate about uh, should the state recognize uh, non-traditional marriage. Lummis predicts other issues surrounding same-sex marriage are sure to end up on the high court's docket in the future. I believe the debate will now turn to what is the role of government uh, in uh, the marriage contract. 
Uh, so it'll. T- I think it's going to continue to be debated, but take a very different uh, posture. It's unclear if the First Amendment Defense Act will come up for a vote this fall, but the conservative wing of the GOP is pressuring party leaders to make it a priority. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Changing gears, Wyoming is the only state in the country without a refugee resettlement program. That's the office that chooses refugees to bring to the U.S., helps them find jobs, and teaches them English. But that doesn't mean there aren't former refugees living in Wyoming. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard brings us the story of one former refugee who's trying to change things in Wyoming. Bertine Bayige is a math teacher who lives in Gillette, but was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I always thought that I had, you know, my life completely, you know, drawn up. I have all these dreams, and, and I, I, I can see them happening until uh, when the war started. And in the blink of an eye, it changed everything. The war was spillover from the civil war in Rwanda that broke out a couple years earlier. Rebel groups started patrolling the east, where Baij lived, looking for child soldiers. I remember that day how... Uh, Bullet was flying, you know, bullet was flying, uh, and we always hide under the bed. And, you know, the, you can hear the boots uh, because all the, the soldiers wear plastic boots. Getting in house from house and, you know, knocking the door down and pulling people out. And I was pulled out there and, you know, thrown in, in a truck. And my mom was trying to, to, to protect me and, and they just shove her on the side and... Uh, thrown in the truck and uh, was taken away. I spent uh, two and a half years in the, in the, under the captivity and uh, I was able to escape and made my way all the way to Mozambique where I was a refugee for five years. Then Bayouj was selected through a refugee resettlement program to come to the U.S. He was brought to Maryland, where the NGOs and government agencies that were part of the program found him an apartment and helped him adjust to life in the U.S. For example, showing you how a shower faucet works and how water, cold water, orientation, you go to classes at the office, how do you look for a job, uh, they help you fill up application. After being in the country about three, four weeks, I was able to get a job at a uh, Burger King in Maryland. That was my first job. And I couldn't speak the language, so I had to work in the back, cleaning and, you know, taking trash out. And, you know, a few months later, after attending English classes, they moved me from cleaning to actually reading the information from the screen and, you know, making burgers. And then a few months later to actually going up front and taking orders. That, that just made me feel like I was winning a lottery all over again. And then from that point, going all the way and working to the um, drive through Those basics, it's the key that, you know, can help those refugees become successful because once they are given those tools at the beginning and show them that the sky's the limit, the sky is truly the limit. After living in Maryland, Bayouge was offered a scholarship to study math and education at the University of Wyoming. He moved to Laramie, graduated, and got married. I never talked about my, my story. I never talked about my experiences. And the reason behind that was not that I, because I was ashamed about it, but I did not want people to feel sorry for me. I wanted people to look at me as a hardworking uh, member of my community that 
is willing to do whatever it takes, you know, to, to be the best teacher that he can be. He can be a professional. That's what I wanted to portray. But when Baij became a naturalized U.S. citizen, a reporter was at the ceremony. When he found out Baij's background, he asked to do a story. As I was reflecting about it, and I was like, you know, if this can inspire somebody out there, if this can, you know, get somebody to realize that, you know, your worst day might not be the worst day. And, you know, there is always, always a brighter day if you can just stick to it. Um, you know, I, I grew to sit down with him and he wrote a, a really amazing article. After the article came out, Bayouj began to speak more about bringing a refugee resettlement program like the kind that helped him to Wyoming. He did more interviews and even spoke with the governor. But not everyone was happy about it, and the backlash started to get personal. You know, our faces were everywhere. There were times where people were saying, oh, we know who you are, we know we're going to do everything to stop you. And I'm sitting and I'm like, stop me for doing what? You know, this is nothing but a discussion. Uh, people took it as if they were going to be a tent city in Wyoming. So there was a lot of misconstrued information that was there. I struggled a lot with that. I struggled a lot because I was like, I could, you know, close my mouth and teach my math. But I looked at Wyoming as a whole, you know. Wyoming is a place I call home and say, if I can, you know, I can make it a better place. All these painful events that I have to deal with, that my family have to deal with, you know, will be worth it. Bertine Baige is still looking forward, hoping to engage and inform more Wyomingites about refugees and resettlement. It's still hard. Um... Because every time I, I share it, you know, it, it's, it, to a certain degree, you're kind of relieving it. And nobody want to think about the hard time that, you know, they've gone through. But I, I, I try my best to tell it because I don't tell it for me. I don't tell it for, uh, you know, for myself. I tell it for people to understand what is going on and educate people uh, because education to me is the key. Uh, the war in Congo and Rwanda uh, have one common element, and that was lack of education. People were duped to do things that otherwise they couldn't have done if they were able to think for themselves. So if sharing my story can educate people, you know, it can help people understand I would gladly do that, yeah. That was Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard speaking with former refugee Bertine Baij. When we come back, we'll have stories on thin air painting and coffee. This is Open Space. This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. There's a long tradition of what's called plein air art in the West. That's when an artist paints right there in the great outdoors. But for 40 years, one Laramie artist has taken this technique to new heights, literally. You could almost call his work thin air painting. Joe Arnold has painted from the tops of some of the world's most majestic mountains, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards decided to scale a Wyoming mountain with Arnold to see it through his eyes. I join 62-year-old artist Joe Arnold and his dog Rufio on a trek up 12,000-foot Medicine Bow Peak. 
As we hike, I wonder if Arnold considers himself more of a mountaineer who paints or a painter who climbs mountains. There's a difference, I think. Today, the sky hangs gloomy with smoke from distant fires. But this doesn't worry Arnold. Glass can be great for composition. As we hike, he tells me about growing up with divorced parents on two coasts, his artistic mother in Washington, D.C., his outdoorsy dad in Los Angeles, who took him mountaineering in Wyoming every summer. But for a long time, his love for art and mountains stayed separate. At Philadelphia College of Art, I was doing subways and architecture. Towards the end of my college degree, we were going back into the mountains. I thought, nobody's doing the mountaineer view, which is quite a unique perspective because everything's falling away below your feet. You're dealing with this downward space. So it's quite different than standing in a, a scenic turnout where most Teton paintings are done and you're, you're looking up at the mountain. Do you consider yourself a pretty good mountaineer as well? Well, I have a long resume, but I don't put up new routes. So I'm not an innovator that way. Um, I consider my art to be where I, I put the most innovation. And, and I, I think it's still, for me, the greatest challenge. It's more challenging than climbing the mountain? Yeah. We reach the saddle and take a breather. So yeah, so tell me some of the uh, the mountains that you have painted from the Tassa. Yeah, I love the Grand. I love Mount Moran. That's been a great one. The Tetons in general are great to paint from because not only is there one main peak, but there's other peaks that will fill up part of the composition. And it's not just like space. You know, Switzerland was really beautiful. I got a lot of great pastels from that trip. In Bolivia, uh, I think the highest pastel I ever did was at 18,000 feet. A couple of people wanted to buy that pastel. I, I'm not ready to part with it. <laughs> Why is that? Well, that's pretty impressive to have a, a pastel that you did in a place like that. So it's not like a, a photograph of taking a picture up there. What, what's the difference between one of these pastels and just well, taking a photograph? That is a good question because I think there's more of you invested and, and you had to stay there and study everything and watch the clouds move in and out. And it's these pastel drawings that he takes home and turns into full-sized oil paintings. Huge paintings, some four by six feet or larger. Is there times when you're like actually on ropes in doing some of these pastels? Yeah, I was up at Long's Peak, but a gust of wind came along and I was taking a selfie with the pastel in my hand, the, the picture. The, the wind grabbed that uh, pastel and board out of my hand and it flew over this cliff. And uh, I couldn't get to that one. So I went back to town and grabbed some friends. We went back up there and rappelled down to the pastel and retrieved it. It was quite a rescue. <laughs> well, why do you feel like you need to go to that effort for a pastel? Well, and it's, it's again that engagement with the mountain and it's the um, act of painting that is what I remember in the studio. Well, we should probably get up there, huh? Well, I think so, yeah. Okay. Interesting cloud. We finish climbing the steep switchbacks to the summit and Arnold unpacks his art supplies. This is my little pastel rig. 
He sits down in his blow-up chair and starts sketching the iconic view of Medicine Bow's cliff face. Lakes glitter far, far below. That seems somewhat precarious to me. It, it does, but this <laughs> chair will fill in all gaps. <laughs> okay, this isn't ideal for grabbing the pastels, but it'll work. He works fast with chalk-like pastels using an impressionist's technique, little swipes and dashes of color that all suddenly pop to life before my eyes. Most uh, landscapes, you're kind of looking up at these mountains. Yeah, yeah, you know, usually you'd, you'd have a horizon line here and then the mountains would be up here. So the horizon line is more in the yeah, middle. Yeah, the horizon line's up here. At the top. In fact, I'm gonna put it in right there. And then the mountains are down below it, so that's one of the immediate differences that you see in, I mean, the mountaineer's view. Now what's cool is that blue right against the cliff. That is a rich color. You know, uh, on this gray sort of day, we're going to want to emphasize some of these colors. Okay, well let's call that good. All right, that's beautiful. Well, wow. thank you. Do you think it's something you'll be able to use back in the studio? Oh, you bet. This is very fun stuff to paint. And How are you going to make sure that this doesn't smudge and get uh, ruined on the hike back out? That's a very important question. And um, what I did is I, I put this glass scene over the, the pastel and it, it doesn't pick up color. Ah. It's like a, a wax paper almost. Arnold tucks the little picture away, and we start down the mountain. I wonder if I'll see it in oils in the near future. A smoky day over Medicine Bow Peak. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. You can see photos of Arnold's completed Medicine Bow pastel at our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. And finally today, one part of Wyoming's deeply held cowboy culture is cowboy coffee. That strong, dark, bitter stuff has fueled the state since the 19th century. Coffee in Wyoming is often more about strength than flavor, but now a new coffee roastery in Laramie is trying to change that. Since last summer, H&S Coffee has been doing small-batch artisan coffee roasting. As part of our occasional series on Wyoming entrepreneurs called Upstarts, Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryant visited the roastery and had a taste. Okay, this is public radio, so there's a decent chance you're listening to this story in your kitchen or in your car while sipping a cup of coffee. Well, here's your first coffee tip. Those sips should probably be a lot louder. You want to slurp. You want to aerate the coffee across your tongue. That's Coulter Sunderman, the roastmaster at H&S Coffee Roastery. On this early morning, he's leading a coffee tasting at H&S's space above an office in downtown Laramie. The event would feel similar to anyone who's been to a wine tasting. The gathered coffee fans sample six unmarked cups and toss out tasting notes. We're kind of like a cashew or peanut butter. This one? That one, that one is kind of nutty. 
Mm -hmm. These two, yeah, very handy. Tasting notes are printed on each bag of coffee that H&S sells, along with the coffee bean's country of origin and often the individual farm they came from. This level of detail is pretty standard now at coffee roasteries in big cities like New York or Chicago, but it's fairly new to Wyoming. Wyoming in general drinks a lot of coffee. They may not be specialty grade yet, but it's the first step. That's Joshua Hyen, the other half of H&S. While Coulter Sunderman handles the roasting, Hyen is the distribution and IT guy. And that's a big part of the business. There aren't that many people to sell to in this state, so H&S has had to focus on cross-country sales through its website. But Roastmaster Sunderman says being here in Laramie has pushed them to be more creative than if they were based in a big coffee city like Denver. Because we're rather isolated, at least in a coffee culture sense, um, we don't really have any external influences directing what we do. And I think that's actually really powerful. H&S's roasting process is constant experimentation. Coffee has more flavor compounds than wine, and like a winemaker, Sunderman adjusts his roast to fit each new variety of coffee bean. So when you roast it really meticulously, you can bring out or rather keep intact kind of the fingerprint that that coffee has. To get this level of precision, Sunderman tracks the progress of his roast on a computer program, which monitors and graphs things like how hot the roaster is and the moisture of the beans. And, uh, and this is where we'll see a kind of a bell curve of acidity start. The acidity will actually go up, so we want to make sure we get through that to avoid a, a real sour taste. I smell coffee. Autumn Gonzalez is one of H&S's testers. He's new to the whole specialty coffee thing, and he likes it. He says he won't be going back to his old morning routine. What were you drinking before this? Uh, Starbucks and <laughs> gas station coffee and, <laughs> and Folgers. I'm classic. Joshua Hyen and Coulter Sunderman are counting on conversions like this for H&S to be a success. And so far, it seems to be working. The roastery is already selling about 700 pounds of coffee each month. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. Thanks for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you missed the show, you can find it or individual segments on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to sign up for our weekly podcast that's available on our website or via iTunes. If you are an iTunes subscriber and enjoy the show, we'd also love you to rate the program and comment on it. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.